today really is a significant um, it's a significant significant day in the in in the series that we've been doing and I actually to be honest with you was marking this day on my calendar because I knew that at some point we're going to get to this particular text and today's the day and this is significant and the reason why I say it's significant is because this this text that we have for today is actually the text that really defines what it means to be a Christian. And so if you're not Catholic or you're not Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, then your spiritual heritage really is rooted in this text. And not only that, but uh, the whole Reformation was really built on this. Um, the apostolic teaching that you read about in Acts chapter 2 is really built on this. And it's the heart and core of the gospel. And it's justification by faith. And so today's pretty significant. I'll be honest with you, when you have that kind of, I don't know, that, I mean, that much is writing on this paragraph, i gotta, I got to get this thing right. And so um, there's a lot of pressure, I'll be honest with you. I've been feeling it like, man, I hope, I hope yeah, I hope the Lord comes through in this. So what I want to do is I want to pray, pray that our time together would be helpful and there would be clarity and we would have confidence in knowing what Scripture says about this particular topic. So, Father, we ask in Christ's name that you would meet with us and that you would grant us the things that we're going to need according to your grace. For me to be able to say what needs to be said with clarity and accuracy. And for those of us gathered here, for ears to hear and hearts to believe the things that we see in Scripture. So God, would you grant us the posture and the humility we need to receive your word? I pray too that you would grant us clarity of thought so that in hearing about this significant, essential doctrine, God, that we would confidently leave having better understood what your word says about this. And so God, we're just entrusting this to you. And we're asking that you would come through for us. And we give you thanks for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read the text, I want to give us a little bit of a reminder of where we've been just real quickly. There's three main things that we've been talking about. The first one is this. The Apostle Paul is a true apostle, no matter what people say. And uh, there were some people suggesting that the Apostle Paul was not a true apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12. They also found that his spiritual gifts were less than spectacular. And so he was defending his apostolic ministry. And we see that in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says that his, he became an apostle not through any man or group of men or anything like that, but it came from God. And what we see as we trace it through chapter 1 into chapter 2 is that Paul then des, uh, defends his apostolic authority and apostolic ministry by, by reminding us that he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Then he recounts for us the travel that he did right after he became a Christian. And how he did not have enough time to actually meet with the Jerusalem apostles. Except for 14 years later, he was able to meet with them. But when he did meet with them, they didn't add anything to what he was preaching. They said, you, you got it right and you're good to go. And then it leads to the second thing that that legitimizes Paul's apostolic authority to do two things. To preach the gospel, number one. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul finally encounters the Jerusalem apostles, and that's James and John and Peter, and he lays out his gospel. They don't do anything to correct him or add anything to him. They said, you've got it, and then they perceive the grace of God in his life. They give him the right hand of fellowship, and they actually send him off on his way to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But the second thing that his apostolic authority gives him is the ability to correct where necessary and to correct people who are out of step with the truth of the gospel. And we saw that last week in verses 11 through 14, where Paul actually confronts Peter. And we see that in verse 11, where he opposed him to his face. Verse 14, the apostle Paul writes, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Jews to live like Gentiles? Basically what Paul does is he uses his apostolic authority to correct not just anybody, but to correct the apostle Peter, which shows us, you know what, he's legit. Like he can have, he can say these kinds of hard things because God has truly made him an apostle. Now what was happening thirdly is in the churches of Galatia, there was a distortion that was happening. Some false teachers had infiltrated the church and they began to teach that, yes, you need to be 
Uh, you need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, but you also need to be circumcised. And so last week I talked about how there's a distinction, but we also need to make sure we don't divide this concept of what the gospel is with what the gospel does. Remember that? And so what happened with the apostles is they all agreed on what the gospel is. They got the doctrine right. They got the theology right. But what ended up happening is they were really having a disagreement about Peter's understanding of what the gospel does. And so Paul was confronting him because he was out of step with what the gospel actually does. And the reality is when we distort what the gospel is, the consequence or the result of that is that what the gospel does becomes veiled. It becomes hard to understand what we ought to do about the gospel if we got what the gospel is wrong. And conversely, if you see somebody out of step with the gospel, they're not walking in faithful obedience to what the gospel demands. It's an indication that something is off in regards to their understanding of what the gospel is. And so that's why Paul had to come to, Tim, to Peter and remind him about what he's doing and why he ought not act like that. And he did so by reminding him of what the gospel is. And so let me refresh your memory a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2. This is what Paul writes about this little scenario, verse 14, that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and the both here refers to Jews and Gentiles. So he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances so that, and here's the purpose of what Jesus did, what he was accomplishing, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And so in Christ, there is one new man, one new body in place of the two, Jew and Gentile. Now there is one, and that one is called the church. And so making peace, verse 16, and he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so what the gospel does is break down the dividing wall of hostility. It reconciles sinners to God and to one another. And it creates a single body called the church that is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. That's what the gospel does. Now what Peter was doing, remember when he was eating with a bunch of Gentiles and then some Jewish people came in and he saw them and then he began to separate himself from the Gentiles? He began to disassociate. What he was doing was acting as though what the gospel did did not actually come, come to fruition. It didn't actually happen. In other words, when Peter began to separate himself from the Gentiles, he was living as though the gospel didn't break down the dividing walls of hostility, that it didn't create a single body called the church. And therefore, by his actions... The very gospel itself is thrown into question and is being compromised. And he was living out of step with the gospel truth or the truth of the gospel. And so we need to make sure we understand what the gospel is because what flows out of what the gospel is is what the gospel does. And its implications and its demands for our obedience. If we get that wrong, this will be wrong. And if you're out of step over here, it's an indication that something's going on over here. And that's the interaction that happened. And so we're going to go to verse 15 through 21. I'm going to read it, and then we'll circle back around, and we'll go line by line through this and see how the Apostle Paul unpacks the doctrine of justification by faith. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is Paul's explanation of justification by faith. It is such a significant um, doctrine. It's, it's, it's so huge. Like I said, this basically encompasses what it means to be a Christian in those sentences. It's the key to understanding the rest of the book of Galatians. This, these paragraphs are actually the very heart of the gospel itself. And so, I guess, like weighty are these issues that Martin Luther actually wrote this about this doctrine, about this, this truth of justification by faith. He writes, if this article of justification stands, the church stands. But if this article collapses, the church itself collapses. He's, he's not speaking hyperbole here. This is legit. We've got to get this right. Everything else flows from this. So let's begin in verse 15. And I'm going to go, I said in earlier services, I'm going to go verse by verse. But then I realized that's pretty much lying because here's what's going to happen. Uh, each of these, like verses 15 and 16 in the original is just one sentence. And um, I'm going to have to break verse 16 up into different segments. And so we're not going to go verse by verse. We're going to go segment by segment. And you're thinking, oh, God, we're never going to leave. You thought it. <laughs> Verse 15. Paul uses the pronoun we, and why he's doing that is really important. In the original Greek, you don't have um, punctuation and you don't have quotation marks. And so we're not exactly sure where to put the quotation marks, but in the English Bible, it usually ends right after the word Jews in verse 14. But there's good reason to believe it extends all the way through verse 21 in this section. And so the we there is an indication that Paul is talking in reference to we as in himself and Peter. And you'll see why it can't be Paul and us as Christians today. Because he says we ourselves are Jews by birth. It doesn't work for many of us. He says we ourselves are Jews by birth. So he's talking about Paul. he and Paul are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And I want to stop and explain this because this sounds kind of harsh. What Paul is doing is making a distinction between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people called Gentiles. And he refers to the Gentiles as sinners. And what does that phrase mean? That phrase simply means that they're not included in the Jewish people. Because you have to remember the Jewish people were the chosen people of God. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And God chose them not because they were great or because they were awesome, but he simply put his love upon them. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 7, like I said. But God gave the Jewish people the covenant through Abraham, through Moses, through David. And you remember we studied that kind of stuff just a number of months ago. And so these people, the Jewish people in Exodus 19.5, are called by God as his treasured possession. He just loves them and uh, he considers them his treasure possession. So they're a privileged people in distinction from the Gentiles who didn't have that same kind of privilege. We see this in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul writes this. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by, this, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, and then look at this description. That they were separated from Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, the Messiah, the promised one. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Resulting in the fact that they have no hope and are without God in the world. So Paul makes that distinction. Paul is not negating that there isn't a distinction. He's saying there is a distinction. But the reality is in verse 16, things have dramatically changed. Things have dramatically changed. And Paul wants to remind Peter just how much things have changed. And if you remember in the rest of chapter 2, the distinction between Jew and Gentile, that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And now in place of the two, God has made one. And it's called the church. And so Paul is going to do this in verse 16. He's going to remind Peter of what has happened. 
He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter wants, or Paul wants to remind Peter of something really significant. Now remember, Peter has alienated himself, separated himself from the Gentiles. And so Paul's taking some time to correct him. And now Paul is saying, yet Peter, you have to remember, we know. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The word there, know, emphasizes personal experience rather than what we typically think of knowledge as, which is um, the apprehension or comprehension of something with the mind. You guys understand that? There's a difference between things you know and things you know by experience. You guys tracking with me? Okay. And so Paul is reminding Peter of an experiential knowledge, something that they shared together as a common experience. You know, we know, Peter, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul wants to remind Peter about justification and the way in which a person is justified. Now, before we get into what, how a person is justified, we have to define what justification means. Justification is a legal term. It's used in the court of law. It means to be proclaimed innocent, to be acquitted, to be cleared of all charges and wrongdoing. So in the biblical sense, the idea of justification or to be justified, it means to be declared righteous before the bar of God's justice. So just imagine for a moment, if you use your imagination, that God is a judge, full with a black robe and everything, and he's sitting at his, uh, whatever it's called, thing, and uh, you're standing in the courtroom, and the whole reason why you're in the courtroom with God as judge is because there's a trial going on, and the trial is about whether or not you are innocent or guilty when it comes to breaking his law. So what are you going to say to God, who is the judge, about whether or not you are guilty or innocent regarding obedience to his law? Well, if you're smart and honest, you would say guilty. I've broken God's law. Now, the penalty for breaking God's law is that there is no admission into God's presence. And so you will have to face the consequences for law-breaking. But justification is that in that very same courtroom where you acknowledge your guilt before a holy, perfect God who demands perfect righteousness, perfect, pristine, without fault obedience to his law, but instead of a guilty plea or a guilty verdict being rendered by God the judge, instead what you hear is not guilty. But it's more than just not guilty. It's not guilty, righteous, perfect, holy, blameless, innocent. That is the concept of justification. It's also translated at the end of verse or in the middle of verse 21 as righteousness. It means to be declared righteous, to be declared holy, to be declared innocent, that kind of thing. It's a, a justice term. So how is it? What is the means by which somebody is declared Righteous. How do you receive a verdict of not guilty? Well, Paul gives us two options, and they are contrasted one to another. He says this, we know by experience that a person is not declared righteous before a holy God. You're not declared righteous. You're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a, a contrast. There's two approaches to justification. You can either approach God through works of the law or you can approach God through faith in Jesus. And those are your two options. Now I'm going to simplify the idea of works of the law by, by using this phrase law works. Law works. Because in, in the Greek it's, it's only law works are the only words that are there. And so you approach God for your justification according to law works or you approach God in justification by faith in Jesus. That's your two options. Now what's really important is you have to see it. Paul says, nobody is justified by law works. 
which means if you go into the courtroom and you're standing before a holy God and you are pleading your case, you will not be declared righteous or innocent when you lay before God all of your achievements and all your accolades and all your obedience. That won't do it for you because God demands perfection. So nobody is justified by law works. Now, what does he mean by law works? What does he mean by works of the law? Paul understands this to be an observance to the entirety of the Mosaic law. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul simply says that for all who rely on law works are under a curse. Why are you under a curse if you rely on law works? Because it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You notice all things, everything. Obedience demands everything is obedient. It's hard. Verse, chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And so law works is the idea that you can endeavor to be counted righteous and gain life through observing law works. And particularly the law works that pertain to the uh, cultural distinctiveness of being Jewish. And so the distinctiveness of being Jewish is Sabbath keeping, circumcision, and dietary laws. What you can and can't eat. Those were the things that the Jews especially emphasized in order to distinguish them from the icky world out there. And se- except for they banked on those things as the reason why God would justify them, the reason why God would accept them. But Paul's saying you are not justified or accepted because of law works. Nobody is. And that is because nobody can keep the entirety of the law perfectly. Now, we live in a world today where there's a lot of people who are trying to live by law works. Many people, including some of you sitting in this room. Let me give you examples. Some people try to be good. And so they try to live by some moral standard that they have. But I find it always interesting that people define good very differently. And usually the bar that they set for themselves is much lower than the bar they set for other people. You see how that works? Um, We're pretty selfish like that. There's another way that people try to live by law works, and that is they look at the Ten Commandments and go, oh, that's a pretty good idea, so I I will try not to steal or lie that much. Except for those times when I need to. You know what I'm talking about, you know, to make things more comfortable. Or people try to live by law works by trying not to be mean, unless, of course, the person deserves it. Or we try to do the positive side of it. We try to live by law works by being nice and polite to other people, especially when it's to your advantage. Or we try to live by law works, even as Christians, by doing negative thi- or by avoiding negative things and doing positive things. Let me give you an example. We live by law works when we, you know, try to live by not drinking, not dancing, not using tobacco, making sure you don't watch icky R-rated movies. Um, Game of Thrones, out of the question, don't be unequally yoked, that kind of stuff. Or, or the positive side of it, got to make sure you do your quiet time, share your faith, read your Bible, serve in a ministry at church or else, that kind of stuff. That's living by law works. Now you may be sitting there kind of thinking, man, Phil's making that stuff sound like we shouldn't be doing that. He's making it sound like that's bad. So let, follow with me, okay, real clear because I don't want the emails. Paul doesn't call the law bad. In Romans chapter 7, verse 12 and 18, he calls the law good. And in 1 Peter, or 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he actually calls the law holy. But how the law is good and holy is if it is used appropriately. Which means if you misuse the law, now you've made the law bad. Not that it is in and of itself bad, but its usage is bad. Likewise, it is good to not watch R-rated movies or to read your Bible, to share your faith, all that kind of stuff. 
so long as you approach those things appropriately. But if we try to approach these kinds of law works, even the good things, don't watch certain kind of shows, don't listen to certain kind of music, do certain things like share your faith, read your Bible. If we try to pursue those law works as the basis for our justification and an acceptance before God, now we've just misused those things and now they've become bad. Because we're using those little things, whether they're principles or laws or, or wisdom, we're using those things as the basis before God to say, God, you should accept me for these reasons. Look at all the missions trips I've been on. Look at all the Bible studies I've been in. I memorized entire books of the Bible. I have 31 Bibles in my home. 31 different translations. Look how big my collection of books is. I'm the only one serving in this ministry. Look at these lazy people that don't do nothing. And we present these things before God as the basis for our justification, the basis for our righteousness, the basis for our acceptance by God. And the reality is once we do that, we spoil those very good things because they cannot serve as the basis of our justification. Why? Because as Paul says, nobody is justified by law works, even good Christian law works. So how is a person justified? He says, by faith in Jesus. Pastor and professor Tom Schreiner defines this as a reminder by Paul that Peter's, Peter must not impose the law on Gentiles, for both he and Peter already know that human beings will not be vindicated before the divine tribunal on the basis of their obedience of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is reminding Peter, dude, you know better. You can't distance yourself from the Gentiles and force them to live like Jews because you know that we are not justified by law works. We're justified by faith. You should know better, Peter. I can't commend this week's study in, uh, in our study guide more highly. If, if, if you're in a group and you're kind of one of those folks that tends to like phase out, like you, you go hard for the first two weeks and then pretty soon you're like, oh, something came up. I had to wash my feet or something. I don't know. <laughs> I would encourage you, stay the course. Go to small group this week. Get in the study this week. It is fantastic. One of the things that you're going to read, one of the points that's brought out in this week is, and I want to quote this, is the reminder that merely believing Jesus existed is not the same thing as having faith. Rather, having faith is a sincere trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's a sincere trust in the person of Jesus and in what Jesus has done. And so faith, saving faith, Justifying faith is a sincere trust that Jesus has done everything necessary for me to be justified. It's a trust that I am going to live in such a way that I will continually trust that Jesus is enough. Resulting in the way of life that I will trust in nothing but Jesus for my justification. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. And righteousness. Many people will say, ah, yes, I'm justified, I'm saved. Why? Why do you have that assurance? Because I prayed a prayer when I was 11. And I would say, that isn't what justifies you. What justifies you is, are you trusting the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone? And by your answer, you're not. You're trusting a prayer, not Jesus. Trust Jesus. Jesus is to be trusted. Not only once, but continually. Every day I wake up and I go, my religious performance today is not the determining factor in whether or not I am accepted by God. My religious performance in the last 10 years is not the reason why I'm accepted before God. 
And my religious performance in the next 10 years will not be the justification for why God declares me righteous before him. But instead, I am accepted in the past, accepted in the present, and trust I will be, continue to be accepted because I trust in Jesus' righteousness alone, not my own. I'll explain a little bit more how that works as we go. But that's 16A. So let's go to 16B. It begins with the word so. And Paul writes, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus. And you see what Paul's doing. The word so here is indicating a reason why they are giving out the meaning for you know, the truth of what he just said. So he just said, Peter, you and I know nobody's justified by law works. We're justified by faith in Jesus. You know that. And so we believed in Jesus Christ. You know that. That's why we chose to believe in Jesus Christ. Because we know no one is justified by law works. 16C. Now there's a purpose for why they believed in Jesus it is in order, he says, to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. The phrase in order that is an indication of the purpose of what he just said previously. So it goes like this. We, Paul says, you and I, Peter, we believed in Christ Jesus for the purpose of being justified by faith in Christ alone, not by our law works. So in other words... The whole reason why you and I put our trust in Jesus is so that we would be justified to be declared righteous before God. Don't you remember? Don't you remember what happened? Why in the world are you now returning to something for which we have been delivered from? And so Paul is trying to remind Peter of the glorious truth that we place our faith and trust in Jesus because in doing so, God declares us righteous. How does that work? It works sim it's simply like this. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standards. All of us have failed to obey God's law perfectly. And therefore, none of us is righteous. None of us. However, God sent Jesus to live as a human being, and Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God's law, which means he is the only one who has ever lived on the face of the earth who can rightly be called perfect. And this perfection of Jesus, his obedience to the law in every imaginable way, we are told by God that if we will place our trust in him, which means we look at ourselves and simply say, I am not good. I am not righteous. I am not holy. I am not obedient. And we turn from our self-righteousness and we turn from our attempts to justify ourselves and instead we turn to Christ and say, but I trust Jesus' righteousness to be sufficient for me then God transfers Jesus' righteousness to our ledger. And whatever was on our ledger, which is nothing but sin, is then transferred off our side of the ledger to Jesus' side. And Jesus takes upon himself the sin which is ours. And there he becomes a curse for us, taking upon himself the punishment for our sins, even though he himself knew no sin. And the great exchanges. Here's Jesus, or here Jesus is my sin, and Jesus says, great, here is my righteousness. And so when we stand before God as judge, and he says, why should you be permitted into my presence? We don't claim any righteousness of our own. Instead, we plead nothing but the blood of Christ, which has purchased us, and God has imputed his righteousness to us. And so we simply say, God, I don't stand on my merits. I stand on Christ's merits. And I believe they are sufficient. Amen. 
When you begin to trust Jesus, the goal for you is every day to continue to trust in Jesus. It's not as though he was sufficient when you prayed the prayer at 11. He's sufficient every day. And so we just, every day, we preach the gospel to ourselves. <laughs> I woke up this morning. I'm about to sin today. I probably already sinned before I even realized it. And yet I know that your grace is sufficient. I know that I am not counted worthy or righteous because of what I do. But I stand on Christ. And I stand on his grace and his mercy and his merit and his righteousness. So if you're not a Christian here and, and you're kind of wondering what this Christianity thing is all about, please, please, please. I know in the media and various places, many people are, are foolishly thinking Christianity is we as Christians are portraying ourselves as being perfect. Actually, that's the disqualification for being a Christian, not the qualification. You can't be a Christian without first acknowledging I am not good. I am not righteous. I am not holy. That's step one. And in fact, it's those who aren't Christians who are the arrogant ones who say, I think I can do it on my own. You see the difference. And so I would contend or I would appeal to you, if you're not a Christian, you don't identify as a Christian, consider it. And think through what I'm saying. And be reminded, 16D. I compel you, put your faith in Jesus for your salvation because you can't ever do enough to save yourself. Why? Because by law works, no one will be justified. That is the truth of God. No human being will ever be justified by their law works. No one. You can't ever be good enough. Okay, next paragraph. One of the objections that Paul faced in his day is still being leveraged in our day. And the objection that Paul had, which we faced oftentimes, is this. If you actually put your trust in Jesus to be justified, that you're trusting that by God's grace alone, through your faith in Jesus alone, that that will save you, some people will say that's dangerous because now all of a sudden you're giving people a license to sin. Because think about it. If you say, okay, okay, don't rely on your law or your works. Rely on faith. Can't people just say, oh, I have faith, and then go about their life sending their brains out all the day long? Yeah, that, that happens. I'm not denying that. The book of Jude talks about that, that there are imposters who come into the church and use the grace of God as a license for immorality. So I would say there are no bona fide legitimate Christians who ever use the grace of God as a reason to send their brains out. People who use the grace of God or the mercy of God or faith as kind of a, you know, like a get out of hell free card and then go about sending their brains out, that's what we call unbelievers. And I know that sounds harsh and straightforward, but we'll see how this kind of fleshes out. And Paul, verse 17, accounts for this kind of thing. Look at this. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, that is justified by faith in Christ, if we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, if I'm trying to find my own justification and I see that God has laid it out for me that I can be justified by faith, doesn't that mean that if in that process I come to realize that I'm a sinner, that I'm a lawbreaker, that my pursuing faith in Christ for justification really just promotes sin? Isn't that what you're saying? If you get rid of law, aren't you just saying there's no law, do whatever you want? But remember, as Christians, the very first thing we must do is, is confess that we are not good and we are not righteous. And so if the guilty verdict is you are guilty 
and we're found out to be filthy, rotten sinners who break God's law in order to be justified by Christ. That comes first, in order to be justified by Christ. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? And Paul's answer is, certainly not. Certainly not. How can you think like that? I've had conversations with many Mormons and many Muslims who find the Christian teaching of justification by grace alone through faith alone problematic. And their answer would be, if you're truly justified by faith, then there's no reason to be obedient. Is that true? That's Paul's point here, verse 18. How is he going to unpack this for us? He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay, what does he mean by that? You see, Paul tore down the law through faith in Jesus. And if the law being torn down, he turns back around and begins to rebuild it, all that will happen is that he will prove that he really is a lawbreaker. Why? Remember, no one is justified by the law. So to return to the law in order to have life and justification is to deny that the new age of redemption in Christ has come. And so now what you're doing is you're rebuilding the law in order to try to live by law works. And those law works that you're trying to live by, all they do is expose how disobedient you really are. Let me put it completely plainly. The more that we pursue the law, the more we will become aware of our own sin. And the more that you are pursuing law works, the more you will be exposed as a sinner, as a lawbreaker. You are not good. You are not perfect. So, if you decide, eh, Christ, eh, I'm going to go back to the law. All you're saying is, I don't want the solution for this. I don't want the solution of sin. I want to go back and I want more of the exposure of sin. I want to know more and more how sinful I really am. And that's what I want. I want to constantly fail. And Paul's saying, why in the world would you do that? If you go back to the law, all you're doing is just proving that you're a transgressor. You're not being justified by squat. You haven't gained anything. And the reason is because they aren't using the law properly. See, the God, gave, God gave the law for three reasons. This is really significant. Number one, sin was rampant around the world, and so God gave the law in order to curb sin, to try to contain it. Second reason why God gave the law is so that people who are living crazy can look at the law and then evaluate themselves compared to the law, and then they will conclude, uh-oh, I don't, uh-oh, I don't obey. Third reason is then in looking at yourself and seeing that you are a sinner and you don't obey the law of God as you ought, you then can go back to God and say, God, what should I do? And in the law itself, God gave animal sacrifices. And animal sacrifices are the way in which your sins are atoned for. But now that Christ has come, for us to go back to the law would be to say, Christ's blood is not sufficient, the blood of doves and goats are. But Hebrews tells us that's not true. And so Romans 5 helps us to understand this. Romans 5.20. Paul writes, now the law came in to increase trespass, to increase your awareness of your own sin, to make you aware that you are not good. You are not righteous. You sin. But look at what Paul says. Where sin increased, where you became more and more aware of your own wretchedness, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, when Christ came, 
He actually obeyed the law in perfect obedience and he became the curse for us according to the law so that our sin is punished in him and we get his righteousness. To return to the law would be maddening. All you're doing is setting aside your own justification and instead you're like, give me more sin. The law was given to show you how sinful you are. And yet remember, God also offers the righteousness of Christ to people who don't deserve it. That's called grace. And the more you recognize your own sinfulness, the more you realize, oh my goodness, I'm in need, God. What should I do? What should I do? And in God's grace, he simply says, repent and trust in my son and I will give you his righteousness. You don't deserve a lick of it, but I'm giving it to you by grace. So... The more that we see our own sin and the more that we keep repenting and turning to Christ, you become more and more aware, oh my goodness, I'm filthy. Grace is sufficient. Oh man, I'm filthy. Grace is sufficient. Do you see how that works? But if you try to resolve your own sin problem by ignoring the grace and instead trying to figure out your own law work system, you just get worse and worse. And now you need to drink yourself into annihilation or whatever. And you have to cope somehow. Got to go shopping. You got to watch Netflix for 10 hours. And instead, the solution is grace. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? See, that's the problem. Are you saying that God's grace is, it, it forgives you of sin? Yes. But, but if you just focus on grace, won't that, won't that cause you to sin more? What? Yeah, yeah, can't you just use grace as a license to sin more? What are you talking about? Titus 2 says, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. And so I look at it and say, grace is our tutor. If you want to learn how to kill sin, grace is, your, is the way. You want to know how to live in righteousness? Grace is your way. Grace doesn't promote sin. Grace kills sin. So this is why it's significant for us, brothers and sisters. Paul says in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law. I died to the law. I put to death the law. Why? So that I might live to God. How does this work? Well, in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, he simply says, how can we who died to sin still live in it any longer? If by the grace of God you have been given the righteousness of Christ, knowing you don't deserve it, that's definition of grace, then the proper response of a received righteousness by grace alone is obedience. And the obedience looks like this. I find sin in my life and I kill it. And I find the righteousness that God demands and I pursue it. So those who have trusted in Christ for their justification, they actively put to death sin in their life. They don't continue to live in it. So does the grace of God give you a license to sin more? No. The grace of God gives you the power to put sin to death. Let me show you Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. From what? Set free from what? From the law of sin and death. You are enslaved to sin and its consequence is death. But the Spirit has set you free in Christ. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Brothers and sisters, there is something that the law cannot do. And whatever the law cannot do, it says in verse 3, God has done. So the law can't do something. Well, what is that that it can't do? Well, the answer is, well, whatever God did, the law can't do. Tracking with me? 
So here's what God did. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, God the son was born of a virgin. And he lived a sinless life. And was crucified on a cross to condemn sin in his own body. And what was the purpose of that? What did he accomplish? In order that, this is significant. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What can't the law do? The law can't give you life. And the law can't give you the power to obey what it demands. So... Knowing that the law can't give you life and knowing that the law cannot give you the power to obey what it demands, God sent Jesus to live a sinless life, crucified and risen, victoriously sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and has sent the Holy Spirit in us to do what? Holy Spirit is sent to indwell us so that we would have life. And that we would be empowered to do the things that God has demanded. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't obey God. And so, brothers and sisters, we got to get this through our minds. The more we disciple our children, consciously, subconsciously, intentionally, unintentionally, through the means of law works the worse we're going to make the situation. And so if your kid is disobedient, the worst thing you can do is more law, more law, more law. All law does is increase trespass. It arouses disobedience. It encourages kids to rebel. And so what we would say is, look at you filthy, rotten, scoundrel of a kid. And we point our children and we point the people we disciple to not to more law but to grace. And we show them the terrific, extraordinary grace of God. And as they behold the beauty and the wonder of the grace of God, they will be compelled to submit themselves to the loving care of God. And in so doing... In hearing what God has done in sending Jesus to rescue us from our sins, the Holy Spirit will indwell these kids. And now they will have the power to put sin to death and the power to live in righteousness. But if we never get to grace, we never give our kids the very thing they need most. I remember when I put this theory to test. Our kids were doing something stupid and I can't even remember what it was. But I remember it was stupid. They were probably fighting and kicking each other or whatever. And we had just come from the store and bought just armfuls of just ice cream. And we brought this home and set it on the counter. And they're like, do we get ice cream? No. What do you, what do you think? I get no ice cream the way you guys behave. That's ridiculous. So we put the ice cream in the freezer. Heather and I are just whooping on ice cream. Just let it run down my chin. I don't even care. <laughs> Just looking at the kids. You don't get ice cream because you misbehaved. Do you think you deserve ice cream? No. You're right, you don't, you little wretch. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I know it's true, but I didn't say it. So I grabbed two bowls out of the cabinet. I went over to the ice cream. I scooped up a couple scoops, threw some chocolate on there, slid it over to my kids, and I looked at them. I said, do you deserve this? No. Well, your dad's giving you grace. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And you know what was awesome? My daughter, at that time, was about nine years old. She looked at me, and she saw her eyes started to glass over. And I said... What are you thinking right now? And she goes, I don't know if I want to eat the ice cream. 
says, I don't deserve it. And I go, yeah, but now what you're doing is you're saying that grace isn't good enough. And you're going to do something on your own. So eat the ice cream because that will bring me joy. So she started eating the ice cream. And to this day, what's awesome is that I now remember what they did. It was kicking. (laughs) But to this day, what's been awesome is to remind my kids time and time again when disobedience arises that they need to put this kind of behavior to death because God has given them grace. And it's been awesome to watch my kids respond to that kind of stuff because they're like, that's right, that's right, God's given us grace. And we prayed as a family and we celebrated the grace of God that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, verse 20, I'm way out of time, y'all, but I get it, man. I can't or else I get the emails. Verse 20. <laughs> most, most famous verse, I think, in this section. You guys probably memorize it. It's on a bathroom mirror. Somebody, somebody has one. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, gave, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me just say two things about this text really quickly. How is it that we die to the law and we live to God? It's that we have been crucified with Christ. When Christ was crucified, we have to understand by faith we are united with him. And so therefore we were crucified. He died to sin and so they, therefore we died to sin. And then he rose from the dead and likewise... We're united to him in a death like his, but we're also united to him in a resurrection like his. So we no longer live in the patterns of the flesh and the sin. Instead, we need to live in the pattern of his righteousness, of the resurrection. And we do so according to the spirit, which has been given to us as we repent and believe the gospel, to empower us to do the very things that God has commanded. And as we walk by the spirit and we walk by faith, we'll see an increase in our desire to kill sin and to live in righteousness. So Paul says you can either live by faith in the Son of God or you can live by law works. It's up to you. I know people, this is going to sound crazy, I know people legitimately who will stand before God and will say, you should accept me because I memorized Galatians 2.20. You may have memorized it, but you certainly don't understand what it says. You can't live by law works. You have to live by faith in the Son of God. Your Awana badges won't get you into the kingdom. You have to remember that. Grace. Grace alone. And so Paul says, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. How do you nullify the grace of God? You live by law works. And he says, I don't nullify the grace of God. I don't live by law works because if righteousness, justification were actually through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Page 65 of your study guide reads like this. There's a quote there. Jesus is either all sufficient or not sufficient at all. No in between. And so therefore we trust Jesus completely because he is sufficient or we trust him not at all. And so I would plead with you, if you're not yet a Christian, you need to abandon all hope in your own effort and work. Instead, Jesus has done everything that is necessary for you to be safe from your sins. All you have to do is turn from your self-trust and instead turn to him. And if you are a Christian here and you put your faith in Jesus, I would say, do it again. Every morning, do it again. It's not that you get saved every morning. It's that you remind yourself that Jesus has reconciled you to a holy God. So remember the gospel every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The grace of God is sufficient. For no one will be justified by law works, but we will be justified by faith in Jesus. So, Father, I thank you so much for doing what the law could not do. You have done, past tense, 
which means it's complete, it's finished. So Lord, may we in this place, if we need to, God, would you grant us repentance for trying to live our lives according to law works. And instead, would you remind us through the Holy Spirit that we are to walk by faith, not by sight, that we should live by faith in the Son of God. Because as the gospel says, you loved us and you gave your son Jesus for us. So Lord, thank you for these beautiful truths. And as we sing in response to these things, I pray that you would receive our worship and that you would reorient our heart to gratitude for your grace and for how great a love that we have in you.